0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, and mental health conditions that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Professionals enter the medical field for a variety of reasons. For some, it's continuing a family lineage. For others, it's a selfless desire to help people. For Efren Saldivar, a first-generation American living in Los Angeles, becoming a respiratory therapist was about finding somewhere to belong. Unfortunately, this motive made it all too easy for him to neglect his patients as he came to prioritize his personal life over those who needed his care. While we've all taken certain measures to get some time away from work, for most, murder isn't one of them. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Powercast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello,
1: everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to assist Alistair by providing some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Efren Saldivar, a first-generation American who became a respiratory therapist to help people breathe, but whose mission somehow got turned upside down by instead helping them to stop
0: breathing. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This episode, we're exploring the crimes of Efren Saldivar, a respiratory therapist who injected terminally ill patients with drugs that made them stop breathing. His exact death toll is unknown, but he claimed to have killed somewhere from 40 to 100 patients in Glendale, California throughout the 1990s. Something to note, many details of this story are based on a reported 2001 confession provided by Efren, which came three years after he recanted an initial confession. All this and more coming up. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
3: There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight.
0: New season out on Spotify soon. In late December 1996, 27-year-old Efren Saldivar walked down the hallway of Glendale Adventist Medical Center in Glendale, California. The critical care unit was mostly quiet that evening, save the beep of countless heart monitors. It seemed everyone was settled. But beneath the eerie calm of the night shift, Efren was buzzing inside. He looked left and right, checking to make sure no one was around, then slipped into a patient room where 75-year-old Salbi Asatrian laid asleep. Three days earlier, the woman had been admitted for acute respiratory failure. she was hooked up to a series of monitors, and she was able to breathe without the assistance of a ventilator. Efren didn't waste time to check her vitals or evaluate her recent charts. Instead, he injected her IV line with a substance called Pavalon.
1: Pablon is a neuromuscular blocking agent used to provide muscle relaxation during medical procedures like intubation and ventilation. It's normally used alongside general anesthesia, and its side effects include increased heart rate, heightened blood pressure, and respiratory depression. This change in breathing happens because the drug disrupts motor neurons that enable skeletal muscles to contract, like the diaphragm, the primary muscle that facilitates respiration. An excessive dose of the medication can cause complete paralysis of the skeletal muscles, and until 2009, Pavillon was used in most US states as part of a three-drug lethal injection combo. For a woman like Salby, who'd recently come off ventilation after acute respiratory failure, pavilon administration could have been lethal. This is because her breathing would have already been compromised, making the likelihood for respiratory depression far more problematic. In all likelihood, Efren's injection would have quickly overwhelmed Salby's system.
0: Within minutes, Salby was dead. As he left, Efren likely felt a surge of satisfaction. He'd get the break he wanted without having to leave the security of the hospital walls. In his scrubs, Efren could do whatever he pleased without question. He could even kill again. The child of Mexican immigrants, Efren Saldivar, had always sought a sense of belonging. Though his brother, Eddie, may have served as a built-in friend for Efren, he didn't have much luck finding other playmates. Generally awkward, Efren was often the butt of jokes. As he got older, he didn't have much luck with girls either. And to make matters worse, Efren's academic life wasn't stunning. Efren seemed to struggle in school, which created a growing apathy towards his studies. Over time, he resigned himself to poor performance in all of his classes, figuring he'd eventually work in a factory or join the military. He liked that in those jobs, he'd be able to work independently and follow precise directions. But at 17, As Efren's classmates prepared to cross the stage for graduation, the assurance Efren typically tempered himself with did little to console him. He lied to his few friends that he wouldn't be walking across the stage since he had a work shift at the grocery store during the ceremony. In reality, Efren wasn't qualified to don the cap and gown. He'd failed English. In 1987, while his classmates attended their first year of college, Efren maintained his job at the grocery store. That was, until one day, his friend met up with him, dressed in medical garb. Efren took one look at the uniform and decided that he wanted one of his own. It's unclear why the clothing left such an impression on Efren, but it may have represented a sense of community and purpose which Efren was lacking. In the days that followed, Efren developed a plan. While pursuing a PhD didn't seem like the best avenue for him, he felt it was within his capacity to become a respiratory therapist. Today, it usually takes a
1: year or two to become a respiratory therapist after completing an associate's program and meeting other testing requirements for licensure. However, this process can take up to four years if someone chooses to pursue a bachelor's or master's degree in respiratory therapy. Their training involves a study of several disciplines like anatomy and physiology, microbiology, chemistry, and pharmacology. They learn therapeutic and diagnostic approaches in addition to advanced, critical, and specialized respiratory care procedures. Their education also affords them clinical exposure where they're able to apply their knowledge and get hands-on experience working with patients. It's possible that Efren thought becoming a respiratory therapist would be easier than getting a more advanced medical degree. This route would have allowed him to start working as a healthcare professional sooner, as opposed to the lengthy educational path required for doctors. Despite the shorter road, the training and material involved are rigorous.
0: But Efren didn't seem to think the training would be challenging. Determined to secure his new career and earn the right to wear scrubs, 18-year-old Efren completed a high school equivalency certificate in May 1988. Immediately after, he enrolled in the nearby College of Medical and Dental Careers, where he took classes while still living with his parents and his brother. By February 1989, 19-year-old Efren had completed his required 1,200 hours of training and received a certification from the state of California to work as a respiratory care therapist. That same year, Efren began his job at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, taking care of critical patients all over the hospital. He couldn't be more thrilled. The work paid twice what his grocery store job did, and he had his own stethoscope. And as a specialist, his role and importance in the hospital were clearly defined. He knew exactly where he belonged. Efren took to his daily duties with pride, administering relevant medication, checking patients' blood oxygen levels, and helping to insert breathing tubes. We managed ventilators and talked to fragile patients while they came out of anesthesia. These tasks were easy enough, but Efren also quickly grew accustomed to witnessing two or three deaths a night. At Glendale Adventist, a large portion of the patient population was elderly people with breathing problems. Some weren't expected to survive long. Despite the job's morbid nature, Efren seemed to find relative contentment at first. He worked the night shift and spent much of his time performing ultra-specific duties in solitude, just like he'd wanted back in high school. This benefit quickly became a double-edged sword, however, as Efren realized his solitary shifts put him in high demand, which was often stressful. At the same time, Efren did little to relax. Instead, he spent his time off taking shifts at Methodist Hospital of Southern California in Arcadia and Glendale Memorial Hospital. He also worked part-time at an ambulance service and for a nursing home.
1: Efren's hectic schedule kept him jumping from one medical job to the next. This may have been difficult for him to manage. It's not uncommon for medical specialists to work shifts at other hospitals as it's a good source of extra income. However, in my experience, having as many extra gigs as Efren had would be unusual. This is because the work can be draining on many levels and doctors need time to recharge in order to provide optimal care. Looking back on my own experience, I remember how tiring it was to take on moonlighting in emergency rooms at multiple hospitals. Back when I was doing this in the 70s, it was a common way for general practitioners to earn some extra money. This is because at that point, emergency medicine wasn't yet a subspecialty and hospitals desperately needed doctors trained in general medicine to work emergency rooms. Going back to our story, Alistair, it's very possible that Efren's excessive workload impacted him. The increased responsibility, coupled with his night shift hours, couldn't have been good for his mental or physical health. While many therapists, like Efren, do take on additional employment, each job still requires them to fire on all cylinders. This is why time management and rest are so key for healthcare
0: providers. Balancing so many jobs meant Efren didn't have much time for a personal life, which may have been his goal. Respiratory therapy became his main identity and productivity became his sole focus. This wasn't without its perks for Efren's family. His long hours enabled him to buy cars for his mum and his brother. Perhaps he thought that the lavish gifts would prove he was a successful adult with or without a social life. Unfortunately, this came at a high cost. Without a way to blow off steam, Efren was growing increasingly cynical about his work. There would never stop being sick patients. The thought alone exhausted him. While initially the medical path had offered him a sense of validation and belonging, the actual job became a chore as he pushed himself to his limit. But still, medicine was his life. Even after work, he'd watch medically-focused news reports. One evening in the early 90s, Efren claimed he flipped on the TV and watched the story of a Chicago medical professional who killed his patients. Apparently, that's when it occurred to him he could do that. He had access to drugs, and he knew how to use them. While he'd been trained to save patients, he could just as easily harm them especially when they were nearing death anyway. Expediting deaths would give Efren more time for himself during his shifts. He could rest without ever having to leave the hospitals that were his comfort zone. As the idea whirled through his head, he may have felt a sense of relief. In his mind, he'd found an accessible solution. Coming up... Efren Begins to Kill.
3: The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones, too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth... I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades-long disappearance. Now every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear, and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders, to those who took drastic measures to start over. Each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation, because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. In 1992, 22-year-old respiratory therapist Efren Saldivar felt overworked by his multiple jobs providing care to elderly patients. However, rather than reducing his hours or quitting, Efren devised a devious plot to make working around the clock easier. Like a medical murderer he'd seen in a television program, Efren was going to kill. Though little is known about the circumstances surrounding his first attacks, we have a general idea of what happened. According to a reported confession given by Efren, one busy evening at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, he walked into a patient's room with a vial of the drug Pavalon He allegedly injected and killed the patient. This moment likely came to shape Efren's modus operandi at the hospital, kill patients when there were too many to assist or when they had untenable needs. It's strongly suspected that Efren administered more murderous injections over the years, though there's no exact record of who his victims were… until 1996. On December 30th, 1996, 27-year-old Ephron claimed the life of Salbi Asatrian, an elderly woman who had already been struggling to breathe. It was all too easy for him to stick the pavillon in Salbi's IV line at 4 in the morning when no one else was around to object. Perhaps his success claiming Salbi's life emboldened Efren. Within that same week, he claimed two more lives. Each was elderly, close to death, and according to Ephron, had a do not resuscitate order. Ephron later said he felt he was putting them out of their misery, but this didn't justify his actions, as none of his victims had consented to their untimely ends. He killed at least one other person in the weeks that followed. But it wasn't until February of that year that Efren got messy. That month, a patient named Jean Coyle drove Efren to his wit's end. A regular visitor to Glendale Adventist who suffered from emphysema, the elderly mother of four kept pushing the call button. Jean knew the staff by name and often laughed and joked with them, And perhaps it was this familiarity that encouraged her bold calls for assistance. Whatever the case, Efren wasn't having it. In the early morning hours of February 26, 1997, Efren approached Jean's bed and injected her with a medication that was likely Pavillon. Carelessly, Efren administered only half a dose. Although it's a powerful muscle relaxant,
1: a half dose wouldn't have had the near-guaranteed outcome Ephron was hoping for, Alistair. However, as an emphysema patient, Pablon was an extremely unsafe medicine for Jean to receive. While a normal dose would have most likely killed her within minutes, the smaller amount would have rendered Jean's skeletal muscles almost entirely immobile, to the point that she'd be desperately gasping for air with very little success. This effect from the drug would have been heightened due to her pre-existing pulmonary disease, as her breathing was already impaired. Like muscle relaxants of the same family, Pavilon doesn't have sedating or analgesic effects and doesn't impact consciousness. Furthermore, it increases cardiac output, leading to a faster heart rate and higher blood pressure. As a result, Jean would have been completely lucid while she was nearly paralyzed, barely able to breathe, and unable to move or call out for help. On top of this, her terrifyingly helpless state would have caused severe stress, dangerously intensifying the cardiovascular side effects of the drug. By being absent-minded in this situation, Efren made a mistake that most likely introduced an extreme amount of suffering. In the moments
0: that followed the injection, Jean started gasping for air. Luckily, another medical practitioner caught her early enough in her emergency to call a code blue. Fortunately, Jean was stabilized. While this may have frustrated Efren, he wasn't in trouble. Not even Jean realized she'd survived a murder attempt. Still, Rumours began to spread about the frequency at which Efren Saldivar's patients died. In April 1997, one of Efren's colleagues, Bob Baker, grappled with this piece of gossip. Someone had confided in him that Efren had a magic syringe. The implication was that Efren's care put one too many patients in body bags. The staff's suspicion was mostly in jest, but Bob felt there might be something more to it. So, he tipped off one of his supervisors at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, who consequently looked into Efren's work history. Perhaps assuaged by the fact that many of the deaths were anticipated for such elderly and sick patients, the supervisor didn't see anything out of order. Instead, It's possible they reasoned that Bob's suggestion had been motivated by his work rivalry with Efren and dismissed the comment. Ignored, Bob's concern about Efren Saldivar only grew. That spring, Bob and a work friend opened Efren's work locker for a prank only to make a shocking discovery. Hanging from a hook was a bag full of morphine vials. The two workers were shocked as Efren's role at the hospital did not justify his possession of opiate painkillers. Bob wanted to tell the hospital administrators. This find only further corroborated his existing fear that Efren was killing patients. But then he thought again. Sharing this discovery would mean admitting to the fact that he'd broken into Efren's locker. There was no way to explain the finding without facing repercussions himself, and the hospital supervisors hadn't done anything with the tip he'd previously given them. So Bob held his tongue around the hospital executives. He did, however, tell some of his co-workers, who were appalled. Word got around, and soon Bob's story got all the way back to Efren Saldivar himself. For as big of an accusation as it was, Efren didn't seem worried. The way he saw it, as long as no one in charge of his paycheck found out, he was in the clear. And none of them did. Off the hook, Efren continued his attacks. With his increased downtime, Efren found a new identity within the hospital boyfriend. At some point in 1997, he began a secret romance with his co-worker, Ursula Anderson. As night shift workers, it was all too easy for the two of them to slip away undetected.
1: Having night shifts at the hospital is unique. It's quieter for the most part, there's less supervision, and in my opinion, it always feels inherently odd to be working while most people you know are sleeping. Because of this atmosphere, it is potentially easier to get away with the kind of irresponsible behavior Efren and Ursula were engaging in. However, this sort of conduct is not rampant or hugely problematic at most hospitals, as the majority of healthcare professionals understand the associated risk to patient safety, the threat it poses to their own job security, and to be frank, that it's just stupid. Working in medicine requires a lot of time and personal sacrifice, and most practitioners value and respect the investment they've made. To be clear, despite the hospital's slower pace at night, patient needs are still vast and the shifts can be arduous. Despite the time or activity level, hospitals represent life and death, so there's never
0: room for recklessness. Efren didn't seem to care how reckless he was, Through the summer of 1997, his relationship with Ursula became his main priority while at work, perhaps because it fed into the sense of belonging he'd always been after. However, one night in 1997, Ursula reportedly walked into a hospital room and saw Efren at the patient's bedside with a loaded syringe. She supposedly yelled Efren's name in alarm, but didn't intervene further. Ultimately, she was unsure about what happened to the patient. It seems they continued seeing each other without ever bringing up the incident again. And maybe because of this, Ephron had no fear of the consequences of his actions. Any sense of wrongdoing wholly eluded him. But Ephron's careless ways were about to bring a storm he never anticipated. At some point, Ursula told her friend Grant that someone at the hospital may be killing patients. When Grant pushed for more info, Ursula clammed up and changed the subject like she knew she'd said too much. But the information stuck with Grant. On February 16, 1998, Grant called the Glendale Adventist Medical Center and spoke to a hospital executive. He said a lady friend had told him there was a respiratory therapist at Adventist who had, quote, helped a patient die fast. Grant didn't know the person's name, but when the administrator read him a list of respiratory therapists, he said that the name Efren Saldivar sounded most familiar. After the rumor with the magic syringe and the comment from Efren's colleague Bob Baker, the hospital administration couldn't wave this tip away. They called the police. To get Efren away from patients, the hospital administration lied to him, saying they were changing the schedule. Efren would be off work for several days. The news came as a surprise to Efren, who finally worried that the rumor about his magic syringe had reached authorities. Sure enough, 28-year-old Efren got a call from the police on March 11, 1998. He agreed to go into the station for questioning. That day, Efren Saldivar confessed to a detective that, During the nine years he'd worked at Glendale Adventist, he had killed over 40 patients. Efren blamed the murders on his own compassion. He hated to see suffering. In the interview, he emphasized that his victims were going to die anyway. They were mercy killings. It was euthanasia. Efren's logic that he was justified
1: in killing patients under deathbeds was delusional and just plain wrong. Medically assisted suicide is a viable option in certain parts of the country, with Oregon being the first state to establish and pass the 1994 Death with Dignity Act. If this is the path a patient wants to take, there are certain legal and ethical requirements to adhere to. As far as the first prerequisite, someone needs a diagnosis of six months or less to live and sanctioned by an oncologist. They then need to undergo an in-depth interview with a physician who's willing to participate and guide them through the process, followed by a second one month later to confirm their decision. The proceedings also involve piles of paperwork, along with meticulous documentation and health records supplied by the patient's attending physician. I've personally never seen a patient make a miraculous recovery after a terminal diagnosis, but it does happen. I have, on the other hand, assisted patients with end-of-life treatment, and it's about as difficult, sad, and upsetting as it sounds. It's really remarkable to think that Efren equated his being judge, jury, and executioner to compassion. Just because a patient is expected to die, it doesn't give anyone the
0: right to speed the process along. The detective knew that all too well. And after two hours of listening to Efren Saldivar play down the malicious nature of his crimes, he had all the information he needed. Efren hadn't named his victims, but he had confessed to multiple murders. At 11.25pm on March 11, 1998, 28-year-old Efren Saldivar was placed under arrest. For two days, authorities held Efren in jail, while detectives tried to figure out how to approach the investigation with no names and no evidence beyond Efren's confession. Without any corroborating evidence, it wasn't legal for them to keep him in jail. And on March 13, 1998, they had to let Efren go free. Two weeks later, Efren made the process even more complicated when he retracted his full confession during a television interview. He told the media that he had made everything up, hoping to be put to death due to his suicidal tendencies and depression. It was a case unlike anything the detectives had seen before. But Efren's recantation wouldn't stop them from seeking justice. Coming up, investigators turned to science to uncover evidence. Now, back to the story. On March 11, 1998, 28-year-old Efren Saldivar confessed to killing over 40 patients at Glendale Adventist Medical Center in California before recanting his statement a mere two weeks later. By the next year, investigators had looked through 100,000 pages of research on Efren's previous patients, digging for answers. However, while they'd yielded some leads, they didn't have enough to feel confident in pressing charges. So, by April 1999, the research team had developed a strategy they compiled the number of patients who had died on the floor when Efren had been on duty over his nine years at Glendale Adventist. It totaled 1,050. Because investigators thought they were more likely to find evidence of wrongdoing in more recent cases, they decided to focus their efforts on the last two years of Efren's employment. From there, they determined which bodies hadn't been cremated. This brought the body count to 117. Finally, they ordered 20 exhumations. Once pulled from the ground, a medical examiner ran tests on the human tissue. Specifically, they looked for traces of pavilon as the substance has a distinct chemical footprint, making it easy to detect. If they found pavilon in a corpse that didn't match their medical record, investigators would have hard proof of foul play the whole investigation
1: apparently came down to these tissue tests when doing post-mortem toxicology screenings medical examiners usually run studies on blood urine stomach contents and bile liver vitreous fluid and sometimes hair nail and bone in this case they were focused on liver tissue which makes sense because it's the primary organ site for drug metabolism The liver ultimately processes chemicals that enter the body, regardless of whether they're injected, inhaled, or swallowed. Liver enzymes break down drugs into metabolites or their metabolic byproducts. When someone dies from taking a medication, for example, the drug's metabolites continue to linger in their liver's tissue. This is because death has caused the liver and other bodily functions to shut down, so the long-acting residual chemicals remain in the organ's tissues. In fact, drug metabolites can often be detectable in the liver even after completely vanishing from the blood. With the collected tissue samples, medical examiners here were able to perform targeted tests to detect the distinct presence of pavilion. Acquiring this kind of evidence on a single corpse could have been tedious but simple enough given that they were testing for a specific substance. However, gathering samples from 20 different
0: bodies naturally made this quite a big job but the task did turn out to be a fruitful one of the 20 bodies 6 showed pavalon in the testing these 6 victims should not have had pavalon in the amounts that it was found in their systems after months of searching the investigators finally had firm evidence meanwhile Efren Saldivar lacked any concept of how in-depth the quest to prove his guilt had become. In fact, at two later jobs, Efren alluded to his crimes when talking to his co-workers. The first time, in late 1999, his call center co-workers took a vote and agreed they'd continue working with Efren, regardless of the allegations that might be coming out against him. Apparently, they really liked him. And though it seemed like he'd finally found somewhere he fit in, Efren quit right after, leaving the call center to work as an electrician's apprentice. In the summer of 2000, he told a co-worker at that job about his history, and the co-worker admonished him for confessing to the police. It's unclear what exactly prompted Efren to speak so candidly but it seems like he felt invincible luckily Efren was in for a harsh reality check around 5:45 a.m on january 9 2001 31 year old Efren Saldvar drove to a job site as he exited a freeway in the san fernando valley a cop car pulled him over he was under arrest. Within the hour, Efren was sitting inside the police station in front of a sergeant. Had his lawyer picked up the phone when Efren called, the conversation may have gone very differently. It's easy to assume his legal counsel would have told Efren to stay quiet and wait for his arrival. But that's not what happened. As he had before, Efren Saldivar confessed to his murders at length. In this confession, Efren managed to make himself seem less trustworthy while offering an even more callous excuse for his wrongdoings. Efren claimed he killed because he was overworked. When he needed a break, he would look at a list of patients and decide who to kill never mind the fact that Efren himself had chosen to take multiple jobs. One aspect did line up with his earlier confession. He was unable to confirm how many victims he'd claimed, saying it could have been 40 or over 100.
1: While this may have been a tactic to conceal his crimes, it could also point to a degree of negligence in his patient care. In my experience, doctors remember extremes in their working lives. These could be interesting or positive things, including anomalous illnesses or conditions, amazing patient turnarounds, or participating in saving someone's life. Unfortunately, the negatives also tend to stick, so most doctors remember all patients who die under their care. For a medical professional, there's something very provocative when one of your patients dies, for a host of reasons. Not only are you often mourning alongside the family, but you may naturally start to question yourself on a professional level. It tends to be a real roller coaster of emotions, and time is often the only remedy. No matter the circumstances or the nature of the specific doctor patient relationship, a patient's death always has some impact on any care provider.
0: Ultimately, it seemed that Efren didn't experience that same hardship. The prosecutors were stunned at his nonchalance. With nothing else to say, they filed out of the interrogation room. By the next day, January 10, 2001, they had filed six murder charges against him with a special circumstance of poisoning. This modus operandi made it more likely that Efren would face the death penalty. From January 2001 to March 2002, Efren was held in police custody. During that time, Efren agreed to a plea deal to avoid the death penalty. On March 12, 2002, four years after he initially confessed, 32-year-old Efren Saldivar stood in the courtroom wearing a maroon sweater and glasses. He lacked any visible sense of guilt though he pleaded guilty to six counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. A month later, on April 17th, Efren Saldivar was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. One of his surviving victims, Jean Coyle, spoke at the sentencing, breathing through a tracheotomy tube. She was still suffering from the conditions that had brought her to Glendale Adventist, and they may have been made worse after Efren's attack on her life. Jean said without hesitation, she thought Efren deserved to die. Afterward, the judge called the case a very human tragedy and insisted that nothing more needed to be said. Efren Saldavar is now incarcerated at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility and State Prison in Corcoran, California. It's expected he will never be released.
1: Efren Saldivar's story is a cautionary tale about the evils of selfishness. For people interested in a career in medicine, the drive to become a doctor should take a back seat to actually accepting the responsibilities and ethics involved in being a doctor. Although most people with self-serving motivations are filtered out due to the demands and pressures of the training, some people slip through the cracks, as we've seen with Efren. It's truly unbelievable to think that a medical practitioner would kill just to lighten a self-imposed work schedule. It's equally crazy to imagine that one could have the audacity to consider cold-blooded murder as an act of compassion. As we already know, the system isn't perfect if people like this can gain legitimate entry to healthcare employment. Efren Saldivar's struggle to belong and to present well to others caused him to become a respiratory therapist for all the wrong reasons. In the end, though, his patients were the ones who truly
0: suffered. Because of the nature of his crimes, it is impossible to prove just how many patients Efren Saldivar killed. The number of deaths he confessed to varied widely, ranging from 40 to over 100. His penchant for lying and recanting also muddled the victim count. But we do know this was a man who, ironically, neglected those around him while seeking belonging. Unable to create a life outside the hospital, he turned to evil, perhaps harming defenseless patients because he was too cowardly to face social discomfort. But in the end... Efren Saldivar's crimes only further ostracized him from a world that sealed his destiny as a loner from the very start. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Efren Saldivar, among the many sources we used, we found the Los Angeles Times articles on the case extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ellie Hart, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
3: I'm Sarah Turney host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.